Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one co-host, and uh, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the others. Hello. Hey, you guys. Evan, who is on the uh, program this week? This week, my guest was Tracy Kidder. And uh, I have to tell you guys a little story about this one. When I started working in magazines, one of the first feature assignments, I think it was the second feature assignment I ever got, was to revisit Tracy Kidder's The Soul of a New Machine uh, on the 20th anniversary of that book. So The Soul of a New Machine is an absolute classic. It was published in 1981. You can do the math on that. Uh, I still think it's one of the best narrative nonfiction books ever written. It's about how people create technology. You will not find a better book about technology and how humans create it than The Soul of a New Machine. So for that story, I went and interviewed Tracy Kidder at his home, uh, which was a huge deal for me at the time. And he was lovely. And that was right about the time he was working on a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains about the doctor, Paul Farmer, who uh, worked to bring medical care to some of the most challenging environments in the world. That book's pretty well known as well. Very well known, I would say. Um, Tracy's written four books since then, all of which I've read and are great in different ways. And he has a new book out called Rough Sleepers, which uh, reminded me of Mountains Beyond Mountains in that it is about a doctor trying to bring medical care to a challenging environment, which is, in this case, people living on the street in Boston. So I decided to interview him again, both of us being 20 years older than when we spoke last time. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. I don't want to spoil the interview, but did he remember you from 20 years ago? You know what? We talked off mic first, and I was like, remember when we talked 20 years ago? And he was like, what? <laughs> but then <laughs> when I described how I showed up at his house with only a long yellow legal pad to take notes on, uh, he did remember me. Well, I feel like we didn't we didn't plan this, you guys, but May is kind of turning into nostalgia month here on the Long Form Podcast. Last week, Aaron going back to his youth in Berkeley. This week, Evan going back to uh, his cub reporter days is exciting. I'm loath to call May nostalgia month because people may uh, note that many of our months are now nostalgia months as nostalgia involves a greater and greater portion of our history here. But uh, I'm excited to hear this one. <laughs> Wow, Aaron getting uh, existential here. Now someone's going to send us an email like when I said that I'd wasted uh, the last decade of my life and tell me (laughs) to keep my head up. And I'm going to say I was joking, but then think in my mind, was I joking? (laughs) Here's the thing I'm not joking about. We make this show in partnership with Vox. Thanks to them. Uh, Now here's Evan with Tracy Kidder. (laughs) 
Could you just explain a little bit about what Rough Sleepers is about and who Jim O'Connell is? Well, the subject is homelessness in America. Jim O'Connell is a doctor who was an extraordinary student, you know, working class kid, but set all sorts of academic records at his school. And he was a great athlete, too. He's just one of those guys. He went to Notre Dame. He was salutatorian of his class. He got one B in four years. He went on to at Cambridge University. He was studying philosophy there. Um, I think it's probably true that he had so many possibilities in his life that he had a very hard time settling on one. And it wasn't until he was 30 that he decided to, he really wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to go to the University of Vermont. I like to tell his story and be a country doctor, but they wouldn't let him in. They said he was too old. He wouldn't have the stamina. So he settled for Harvard and and he did very well. And he got a residency at Mass, Mass General, which is a pretty prestigious one. And he did very well there. And he, in his last months, he was essentially running the ICU. And um, he was about to go on a fellowship to Sloan Kettering. He, you know, pretty, also prestigious when he got conscripted, as he puts it, by a couple of doctors. This is the 80s, 1980s, mid-1980s, when um, most people say the modern era of homelessness in America began. Uh, it's a complicated subject, but there was this um, movement afoot started by the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust to create healthcare for the homeless programs. And the mayor of Boston, uh, Ray Flynn, really wanted to get one of these grants to, to create such a program. And he was having a hard time finding a doctor because the salary was poor. And these guys talked Jim into doing it. I mean, he didn't feel like he had much choice because they were, you know, the eminence grease of Mass General. And he loved Mass General. And he did it, you know, he was only going to do it for a year. And he did it for a year and he didn't feel he was done. So he put off his fellowship for another year. And after that, he just decided he didn't want to leave. He didn't want to quit this. But with a lot of help from his friends, he, as the founding physician of this organization, which has this brick wall of a name, the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, they built a substantial healthcare system for Boston's homeless people. It doesn't serve all of them, but about 11,000 people a year. And they have a, this incredible 104-bed um, respite hospital you know, one of the things we one doesn't think about is, you know, what what if you're homeless and you get surgery? <laughs> what are you going to go? Mm-hmm. Where are you going to go recuperate? That that's one of the functions of 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 uh, these respites. Anyway, no no other place in the country, Washington D.C. has a pretty good respite, but most places don't have anything like it. And what I, you know, it's not curing homelessness. It's not attacking even the root causes of it, but it is attacking attacking one of the great sources of misery. But who, he's a, a fascinating guy. He's he is uh, self-effacing. He is humble, at least, you know, to a, to a fault. He has an assistant who is probably the most overqualified assistant in the world, a woman named Julie Bogdansky. And she, she said to me once, and he's so smart and he hides it so well. And what she did say, she said, you know, I mean, the job isn't simple because she said, he says yes to everything. I'm the one who has to say no, but she has to figure out when, when he really means no. It's, anyway, he's an interesting guy. He's a lot of fun to be around. And when you, when you first met him, so in the book, you say you met him, I think in 2014, originally, yeah. did you instantly see him as a possible subject for you or did it take time? Did you have to spend more time with him to realize 
oh, this could be a subject. It was it was it was very striking. Uh, going out with Paul English. That was, was your book. <laughs> that was the um, dump truck full of money. Yeah, Paul wanted to learn more about homelessness in Boston. It's something that's always troubled him. Uh, you know, it's his home city and so on. So Paul had gotten a ride on this outreach van that goes. There's two that there are two that go out every night all year long uh, from from the Pine Street Inn, which is the New England's largest homeless shelter. And I went along. I tagged along, and I was pretty quickly that I remember this quite vividly. I was I was looking at the world that you know that I really didn't hadn't known existed. I guess in some I'd heard about it, you know, but I didn't know much about this. And here were all these people. In my book, I call them homebodies without homes because they knew where everybody was, their favorite park benches, their favorite hiding places, their favorite. But it was a whole world alive at night when the city was kind of shutting down. And some were hilarious, you know, his these patients arguing with statues. <laughs> uh, and there was such a mixture, but the, it was the warmth of the relationships between this guy, this doctor, this Harvard-educated doctor and these people who were, you know, the city's poorest, of, the poorest of the poor of the city, you would think. And I, I remember just thinking, yeah, I'd like to write it. I think I'd like to write about you. I don't know. It, it does interest me, This these people who light these little paths into the darkness of our of our world. It's interesting that, I mean, he. I didn't know this at the time. There was so much I didn't know about him for the longest time because he is so modest. He and Paul Farmer were friends. He was older than Paul. And one of the things that I've learned, uh, actually, since since my book was published, I didn't. he never told me this. He had, Paul would sometimes mock him at, when they were on forums together, and he'd say, "Poor, poor Jim, he never he never got more than a mile away from medical school." <laughs> and then, but then Paul would add, "And yet, what he sees here, what he deals with here, is exactly what I deal with in Haiti and Rwanda and you know Peru and so on. This level of." Poverty, and I mean, that's the thing that's so horrifying, and and that we'd really rather not know about. I guess that we've got we've got this other world in the midst of you know right in the shadow, as Jim once put it, of these great medical institutions. We have death rates that are staggering. Jim, Jim, when I met him, was already pushing seventy, and one of his he was still the president of the organization. But one of the things Jim has done, I think, pretty well, is to delegate authority, allow people, encourage people to grow up into the, in the organization, take over places. I mean, he doesn't hoard power, but he had been the, and still was the captain of the street team, which is just one of the many small, special teams that the organization has. And what it shows really is that all you have to do is have a really dedicated group of providers and you can make it work. But I mean, it takes a special amount of work. And when you started going out with him and you end up going for five years, you know, spending time with him for five years. Yeah, off and on, but there were two years that were really intense. How do you sort of logistically figure out when you're going to show up and when you're not? Like, what what is your process by which you determine how much time you're going to spend? It really depends on the the job that the person is doing. Or the uh, here, I I just I tried to make sure at first. I, I found out what the hours were, and what were the the the, spe, the special events. It was a pretty varied one. I knew about the the outreach van to start with, but there were these team meetings, there were street rounds, um, and there were there were regular events. And I you know I just basically followed him around, and he was very generous with his time and. And my questions, incessant questions. 
I mean, Paul Farmer would never have permitted that kind of that level of. I mean, I, I traveled with Paul, and I was, and when I was with Paul, I was really with Paul, pretty much all the time. But I'm not sure I could have done it anyway. The life he lived was so intense, so difficult, really. Well, it's hard not to see the parallels, you know, between yeah. Paul Farmer and and Jim O'Connell, and and they're they're in particularly these sort of people engaged in what appear to be very saintly behaviors who do not like to be called saints. No, that's not quite true, Evan. Paul kind of liked it. <laughs> my, my bad. You know, I remember what he said was that he said, I should work harder because a saint would be a great thing to be. Jim just hates it. He hates it partly because his guru, this wonderful nurse named Barbara McGinnis, once said to him, what we don't want are saints would be saints and zealots. You know, they don't last in the in, in work like this. We just want, you know, normal, flawed people who, who really want to do a good job and want to just make this a job people like to do. And I think by and large that's true, but it does to some degree require a, not a calling exactly, just a lot of sympathetic imagination, I guess. But if I think about it, and I think this is true of Paul as well, if you have people who really love, you know, almost anyone who, who, who does a job, who got really good at doing that job, spent a lot of time doing it, and, and then and then you get to use it to serve the you know you get to you get to practice your art on the people who need it more than anybody else, um, and they're t- tremendously grateful for it. And the results are maybe not all you hope for, but good. You know, in other words, you do relieve a lot of suffering. You may not be able to invert these death rates for people who come to you so sick, but I, I think that's a pretty good job. You know, a lot better than jobs that many people have. With Paul, maybe it was different. I don't know. Paul was magical with patience. He wasn't humble. <laughs> Although he was with patience, but he was certainly not humble or self-effacing most of the time. He made it work for him. Jim Jim is all of those things, and he makes it work for him too. But there, but saints, I, I think problem is when you call a person a saint, whether we mean that in a religious sense or in a secular sense, we're really saying this person is set aside. He's not like the rest of us, or she's not like the rest of us. And for that reason, we don't have to worry too much about this example. And, you know, really, what are they doing that's that's so different from what everyone else could do? Just maybe they're doing a bit more of it, but just to treat homeless people, for instance, as human beings, to look at them, to say hello. I mean, the, the loneliness out there is amazing. I mean, I think a lot of homeless people lack either the the resources, the internal resources that weren't, I mean, how would you know how to keep a place clean once or an apartment clean once you get into an apartment if you were never taught how to do that? Or you'd completely forgotten because you'd been honing these skills for of survival out on the street? Or more, more, more likely, how would you keep yourself clean in a city like Boston, which doesn't have, has hardly any public bathrooms? And for those reasons, these, you know, homeless people can seem to us, you know, primitive or or even alien, but not if you look at them squarely. And I mean, and you, and you give them a chance to uh, let you know. Then you know they're really just as human as you and I. And 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 this is wrong. Something's really wrong. Th- that's kind of what fascinated me. Is that when Jim and all these and Paul, they knew they know that they know that in some deep way that a lot of us don't. But that doesn't make them saints. It just means that they're smarter than we are. 
And to take that a step further, is is your drive to portray these people, where do you think it comes from for you particularly? Like, is it that you like to expose yourself to people who have that insight and who are willing to pursue these problems? Or you want to expose readers to those people? I don't know. It seems like I do think it's an interesting challenge to try to write about virtue with all, all that's always mixed with it, you know? Some writers have said it's virtually impossible. Charles Dickens, one of my favorite writers, made it look pretty important because he did it so badly. But it's not impossible. I, I just I think it's an interesting challenge. And you know, if you're going to spend a lot of time with someone, some of the villains I've known in the world would want to spend, you know, more than a day, you know, more than a few hours with at most. Maybe another way to say this is is that if you wake up in the morning and you read the news, it's not always a good idea, you know. But it feels like violence, chaos, cruelty really are in charge. And it's nice. It's somehow the world makes better sense if you realize that there are counterforces out there. And, and not to recognize that fact is to miss a whole part of the world, a whole part of life. And those two, those forces are in, inside all of us, perhaps, you know. But people who are really trying, struggling against the odds, I think they're worth they're worth writing about. And it. But it isn't that I, I never have set out to do a good deed, you know, maybe once in a while writing an op-ed, but I never wrote a book because I wanted to do a good deed. I just wanted to tell a good story. And I think those are good stories. You know, there's some wonderful stories in this book, I think, of yeah. you know, that how, he, how, he, how he's forced. Here, here he is as a hotshot young doctor. He goes down to the, this nurse's clinic at a homeless shelter, really a, a, quite a wonderful, notable clinic that nurses had founded, mostly volunteers. And he thinks he's going to be the <laughs> coming in here. Well, this is the way he puts it anyway. But and he's brought to task, you know, right away. You probably think you're coming to do a good deed, you know. And he's <laughs> for two months. This this highly trained doctor has to, while while he's doing work at that clinic, is allowed only to soak patients' feet and nothing else. <laughs> and, it's, and there's a whole lesson in that that's that he was willing. In part because he is so, doesn't like confrontation, and it, it, a weakness, I suppose, but a real strength too. In that, in a situation particularly like that, because it keeps his mind open. Okay, let's see what happens. You know, and it was an enormously important lesson for him. One of the stories that I really I, I found really fascinating in the book were the his connections with some of the longtime patients, many of whom don't survive, unfortunately, that that long because they're living on the streets, but some of them last for years, some of them even decades. And yeah. you also enter into that relationship by virtue of trailing him. And I sort of noticed that there's this one guy, Tony, who's a central figure in the in the book who's living on the street. He's He's in and out of the shelter. And later in the book, you're attending a court hearing just with Tony. And it's sort of the first time that I noticed that it was just you and him as opposed to you following along with Jim as he sort of does his rounds on the street. And it made me wonder how you manage those relationships yourself with the subjects in the book and what sort of how they view you as you sort of become part of the story a little bit. It's always a tricky issue. Well, there are two tricky issues. One is how you manage those in, in real time, you know, and the other is how you manage them on the page. Mm-hmm. And point of view is I've I've always felt, you know, whether or not you was a first person, third person, what kind of first person? Was it first person minor? Is it 
you know, and in, 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 in Mountains Beyond Mountains, I felt I needed to be a character, just to be a guide to this this kind of improbable fellow. Um, and this little story, uh, it wasn't the same in this case, I didn't feel, but Jim had asked me to go to the court hearing with Tony because he couldn't. And it, he felt it was important that Tony get there, among other things. And it was, I was glad to do it. I got really fond of that guy. So I, I don't think it was difficult. The, the, the problem that Jim had, and according to people who were very fond of Jim and has worked with him, I mean, his great, they didn't always like the, the boundaries that he set, which were basically no boundaries at all, or very, very thin ones. I mean, Jim was pretty careful not to give his phone number out to people, but he had made that mistake once or twice. And I, I did the same with Tony and I think a few others. Yeah, I mean, there seemed to be a, a tricky aspect to a lot of the people involved. I mean, both in how Jim dealt with them and then how you wrote about them, that there, there were people, I mean, he was very likable, but there were also people who were, who were lovable because they're human beings, but not likable. And that seemed like a separate challenge. That is, well, for Jim, I, I, that was one of my favorite, my favorite things that he said to his team. Remember, I'll never forget it. He, he was talking about a, somebody had said, oh, you know, so-and-so has done this thing that's kind of, was kind of nasty. And Jim said, he's the kind of person, I think I said this right, I have to be unreasonably nice to because I basically can't stand him. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's not the conclusion we all come to, right? We find someone we we don't like. He what he was trying to say is, you know, first of all, the importance of a team and it's in work like this is, I mean, it's unlimited importance. It allows you to do all sorts of things. One is is when when you when you lose patience, you can share that grief, and when you have successes, you can share that too. Um, you know, and you can talk about really difficult, maybe insoluble problems, and so on. But one thing is that. As he said, it's almost a certainty that if if there's a guy who or a woman who's difficult, and most people don't like her or him, there'll be someone on the team who does. And that seems always to have been the case. So he wanted them to feel free, not to pretend to be something. You know, that's such a liberating thought. It would be for me anyway, and it was actually for me. I mean, okay. But it doesn't mean that you just ignore that person. You don't help that person. On the contrary, you know, then you you owe that person something else. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself 
risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout. Listening, your life just got a lot easier. Now, this book is dedicated to Richard Todd. Yeah. And I know that he he passed away in, in the course of your reporting on this book. And I'm wondering what effect that had on you as you were trying to put the book together. I mean, this is, maybe you could explain, this is the editor you've worked with. I had worked with him, with him, you know, for 47 years. I had another editor at Random House for many years who has been very helpful, Kate Medina. But Dick, I mean, I, I kind of grew up with him. I glommed on to him as a young writer. I was trying to make my way in that world, which, as you know, is really not an easy thing to do. It's even harder now, I think, than it used to be. And he um, taught me how to write, I feel like, you know, as much as anyone did. And he tolerated me. Um, I used to stay at his house a lot in Boston. In those days, the Atlantic, I did a lot of writing, you know, freelance writing for the Atlantic Monthly. And we, there was it was really kind of a shoestring operation by then. Um, I would come in to do to do most of my fact checking because phone calls cost some long distance costs calls cost a lot back then, but I could never get them to pay my those expenses. So I'd come to Boston and make the calls. And it besides, you know, I'd have Todd to, to work with. So I worked with him really closely, and that lasted for all those years. And it it be, had become a a whole technique for writing a book. You know, can you describe that technique? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd uh, go out and do all the field work. I'd talk to him a lot about the idea beforehand. Sometimes I'd write something to test it for myself. Did I, was I really interested in this? And I'd always show him everything. <laughs> and he'd, at, at those early stages, he'd weigh in. Um, he wasn't always sure that I should do something or other. But then if I really wanted to do it, he'd say, well, you know, then do it. I, I remember that was true with book called House that I wrote where he didn't think it was a very good idea. And so I went out looking for other things for God, part of maybe a year almost. And uh, I finally, I came back and said, you know, I'd really kind of like to write that book about carpenters and the building a house. And he said, well, he seemed sort of surprised. I said, well, then do it. He said, he was like that. I'm, I'm, and he had, he had a really nice openness about him. I mean, he was very generous. It does take a certain kind of altruism to take a really keen interest in someone else's creations. You know, it's a hard thing to do. And he also was, you know, how to deal with me, uh, particularly in my younger days. <laughs> Wait, what were the, what were some of the challenges there? The drinking. <laughs> this is one of them. <laughs> drinking, talking too much. Uh, it was getting overexcited about things. Um, he was very calm. What we do, though, finally, if I if I was working on something, finally, I would talk to him regularly while, while doing my reporting, you know, just to have this person to bounce things off of. But then once I started writing, which, you know, usually it's do the research, do the writing, although it's much more, there's all kinds of stuff bleeding in and out of that. But in order to keep from getting blocked up, I just write as fast as I could. I wouldn't even make a real an elaborate design of anything because after writing a lot of articles for the Atlantic and having, you know, found myself stuck in corners, I kind of knew not to do that anymore and not to, not to try to figure things out ahead of time, but I'd make a sort of list sometimes just of things I wanted to make sure I got in there. And then I just write like crazy 
I think I've said this before that writing fast to prevent remorse for having written badly. <laughs> so yeah. that idea, you know, and it's kind of successive approximations. And he would say, I would give him chunks of stuff and he'd say, it's fine. Keep going. I don't know if he ever read all that stuff. You know, then we get to the end. I get to the end of something and he'd say, okay, you know, we'd sit down and start again. There was an idea about rewriting that I think I learned fairly early on, which is it's not just moving sentences around the same junk from one place to another. It's sometimes starting over. And it, and you have to learn not to feel remorse about that, that you've somehow wasted time because you haven't. You've auditioned things, pieces of you know stories that subsidiary to a bigger story, even maybe figured out what the story actually is. I can't figure it out any other way. I have to do it by writing it. One of the m- more valuable things was he could tell me when I was done hmm. or very close to done. It's hard to know when you've, when you've spent you know, a year or two writing something because you, you, you've gotten a little tired of some of the stuff that's there and you almost, you'd almost like to change it just for the novelty of it. I remember with Soul of a New Machine, we, we did, all, did all this editing, cutting things down, making them uh, seem coherent. And I got really upset about some of the things we'd got. And I went back and I put them all back in again. Uh, and, you know, it was all these manuscripts and pages just got taped together. And then I realized, I think it was a day later, before I showed it to him, I, saw, I thought, oh, my God. And I put it all back again. It was. That didn't happen again, really. He was also really funny. And he could tell you, he could tell me anyway that, something was really wasn't working at all without making me feel like I was a, a bad writer. It was wonderful to have him. And it was hard to finish this book without him. And it's harder for me to imagine wanting to write another book without his without him around. But I'm also 77, and I don't know that I've, how much energy I have left for these things. Because I always had to, I, I needed a lot of energy to write these books. Well, I wondered if he, was he... Todd, was he the audience that you were writing for at some point, or was he just a way station on the way to the audience? If, if you imagined what mm. the voice you're hearing in your head, where where it was going, he was the audience. You know, yeah, for the longest time, he was the audience I was trying to please because he was the early on, you know, the the road to publication. And yeah, I think so. I think he was the audience. It's hard to imagine a gigantic audience. What what isn't hard is to just trying to think of a of a sound that you I, I remember I did that once with a, this book, that book House I just sat for once I didn't start really fast I had written a long proposal a theory I still subscribe to if you you don't want to write a proposal that's a list of chapters or something you want to write a piece of the story so essentially what you're doing you, you know you have to try to imagine the, an editor's problem which is is this going to be any good so you try to give them a little taste of, of it, and then you're basically saying, if you want to find out the rest, you got to pay me. Um, but I remember sitting with that book in my mind for a weekend or a few days or a week, I forget. Um, and I, all I was just thinking of the sound I wanted. You wrote in um, Good Prose, the, the book that you wrote with him, something about when you originally met and you turned in your first Atlantic article, that sometimes you wondered you know, sort of where you would have gone if he had killed that story. And then it says, comma, which he should have, which <laughs> I would have. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I probably would have. Yeah. I don't know what I would have done. I might have might have gone to law school or something. 
terrible like that. <laughs> I had some forces in my family pushing me toward that, saying, hey, you know, there are ways to make a living, kid. Writing is probably not one of them. I was just, I just got really lucky. There's a line in um, in Rough Sleepers where uh, Jim, the doctor, is, is describing some other doctors he knows saying, uh, the joy has really gone out of the profession. And he he has a way of overcoming that. He doesn't exist in this world of like doctors who work in medical practice. You know, he's got, he's built his own life, but it did resonate with me because I do tend to sometimes think that about our own profession, that some of the joy has gone out of our profession, or at least it's just become so much more of a struggle for writers over the last couple of decades. And I'm sort of wondering how you, like, how did you keep up the energy? How have you kept up the energy even as the the practice maybe has gotten more difficult or the business has gotten more difficult over the years. I think that's a, what you say is absolutely true. I got lucky with the Sullivan New Machine. Um, you know, I got prizes. I was pretty young and it made money. And so I was able to keep on writing, make a living without being, you know, right in the middle of the fray of, of what I had done for a number of years before then, trying to write as a freelance writer and trying to get people to publish things that you were writing. It was difficult then. I, I have no idea how you can do it now. I mean, I, I, I've just had a very nice and privileged and very lucky professional life. Now, you know, someone could say that about Jim to some degree. What's going on in medicine Doctors remain, American doctors, the, I think they're the, on the whole, they're paid more than any other profession. And they make about three times more than doctors in Europe. But they are now increasingly coming under kind of work rules that make it very hard to, to be a doctor, let alone, you know, find any joy in it. You got 15 minutes, you know, half an hour to do an intake if you're a psychiatrist. It's, and, the neat thing about what Jim has done and, and that he and his colleagues out of necessity carved out of trying to be doctors to homeless people is you couldn't do that. You wouldn't have any patience. Um, these are people who are battered by medicine to the extent that they'd, had, it, you know, they'd ever touched it. Most of them had never, if they'd seen a doctor, had never seen the same one twice. And they you know, had enormous complicated problems and they still do. <laughs> But they had to make a system that, which would allow you to spend the time that was necessary for each patient, which isn't to throw all notions of efficiency out the window, but most of them, most of the standard ones. And it allows you then to, to violate all kinds of rules, I suppose, of, of the trade, you know, mm. friendly to your patients, but not a friend. I remember Jim saying to me, but if we followed that, we would have gotten nowhere with, these, with our, this this group of patients. So, you know, I think when it comes to joy, that's a, that's a really interesting issue for me. I mean, obviously it's not the same thing as pleasure. Um, It partakes of difficulty, sadness, sorrow, but other things as well. I I don't know quite what, I can't, even Jim, who's a trained philosopher, has not, has a hard time really telling you what he, what he means by it. But I think we kind of recognize it when we experience it, rarely enough. But I think if you could say that about your work, it, it's a it's a great thing. Do you think there's a, a parallel there in terms of the way he carved out a space to practice his craft? 
mm-hmm. uh, in a way that he wanted to. Do you feel like you have also carved out a space to practice your craft in the way that you wanted to? I think it's different. Uh, he he had to do this out of necessity. You know, I mean, I think as, as he sees it, that if he tried to follow the sort of work rule <laughs> principles of, of medicine, he never would have gotten, this never would have worked. Um, in my case, I, as I said, I, I think I really got lucky. I don't mean to just try to pretend that I'm being modest, but I, you know, I, I have an awful lot of friends who are really good writers who could not write for a living. You know, they had to teach or do other things or sometimes give it up altogether. And I think you, if you, if you, if, you know, if you have managed to write for a living and, uh, and you don't acknowledge having been really lucky, then I think you're just deluded. Because it's a, no one asks you to be a writer. You don't have much right to feel sorry for yourself if you, you know, if you've chosen to be one. But it's a hard profession. And I think it's gotten, as you point out, it's gotten a lot harder. Um, I worry about it too, Evan. I, I, I mean, I do think that people are always going to need writers if, if, if for no other reason than to tell them what they ought to think, you know. <laughs> I don't think this is the twilight of the written word, but but it is my twilight, so I don't know. You don't think you'll write another book? I don't know. I Right now, I, you know, I've said before that I, I was done, but I'm old now. I mean, I'm 77. I, I feel pretty good, and there are some things that really interest me. I need some time to stop talking about all this, about rough sleepers. I'm not done with that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been actually, actually having a pretty good time because Jim has gone along and talked with me, so we have a nice little dog and pony show. We do. <laughs> he's uh, he's good company, really. He's a wonderful company. Well, I'll let you go, but I think uh, it's maybe appropriate that we end here because when I came to interview you twenty something years ago right. at your house, the last thing you said to me, which I wrote down, was anyone who makes a living as a writer in this country who doesn't say it's luck is lying. <laughs> wow. Well, see, I, I, it's hard for me to come up with, with new lines. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed talking. Yeah, thanks so much for the time. And uh, I hope you do tackle that next book. I want to read it. Okay, thank you, Evan. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. My thanks to Tracy Kidder for coming on the show. His book is called Rough Sleepers. You can get it everywhere now. Our show was edited this week by Seth Kelly. Our show notes were by Megan Valley. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. We produce this show in partnership with Vox. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free 
Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.